Greetings from the American Exception Podcast. I'm Aaron Good, and today we are talking with Sarah Kinzior, author of They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Given the title and how bad the media is when it comes to using Orwellian language to subvert meaning, you might think that They Knew is a book about, say, how the conspiracy theorists are hurting our democracy. But no, uh, Sarah Kinzior really means it. Ours is a culture of conspiracy. Elites conspire with impunity against the public interest. She gets into Jeffrey Epstein, the Franklin scandal, Danny Cosolaro's octopus, and psychological operations like Pizzagate and QAnon. In passing, she even writes a bit about JFK and 9-11. Friend of the show, Nick Bryant, put me in touch with Sarah, and I'm glad she agreed to come on the show in terms of her analysis, she puts more emphasis than I would on Russian deep political influence and on Vladimir Putin himself. I see the Russian oligarchy as being tiny compared to the power of U.S. oligarchs. U.S. is the richest empire in world history, after all. But much more importantly, Sarah Kinzier's book refuses to ignore all these glitches in the Matrix, which over the years have clearly revealed that a sinister and lawless force prevails at the apex of the U.S. empire. It has negated American democracy incrementally and inexorably for decades such that we have arrived at this fateful historical moment. This is why I appreciate her work. As things continue to fall apart, we must focus on the need to reckon with these dark oligarchic forces which have created our crises and which work ceaselessly to prevent any positive solutions from being applied. Sarah Kinzior, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So I have just read your book, They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. And I heard you on Nick Bryant's podcast, and that's how I found out about this book. But actually, a few weeks ago, a subscriber mentioned you to me in a message, and I had not actually seen your work before. And I looked at your other, your earlier work, and I kind of didn't pay that much attention to it because it seemed more sort of in the mainstream to me. And I'm not in the mainstream, so I just I didn't really think about it that much. But then I saw you on Nick Bryant's show, and I thought, well, that's really fascinating that you've made this sort of move in your uh, research interests and such. So could you... Tell me how you came to write such a radical book that really deals with the criminality in high places in U.S. society. Like, how did you arrive at the point where you would write such a uh, radical book? Yeah, I mean, this topic, um, you know, elite criminal impunity, government conspiracies, corruption and so forth, is what I've been studying in some form for my entire career. You know, I started out as a scholar of Uzbekistan and of um, digital media and politics in, in the former Soviet Union, which actually was very useful um, for understanding the direction that the United States was going, uh, especially after the 2008 financial collapse and this accelerated 
kleptocracy. Um, and so, you know, I started writing a lot of articles about that. I think, you know, a few things make people uh, think my work is maybe different than it, what it actually is once you read it. Uh, part of that is that I, I live in Missouri. Um, I wrote a book called The View from Flyover Country, which is not actually about life in the Midwest. Um, it's always funny to me when I see reviews saying it is because it's even when they're really positive, it's clear no one read the book. Um, but but folks who did re read the book know that it's more about, uh, it's a collection of essays about um, corruption and about people and places that are overlooked um, and that are rarely uh, seen for what they are and are instead viewed uh, with generalizations that hurt the people living there, much like Central Asia and much like um, like the American Midwest, like St. Louis. Uh, after that, you know, it was an easy sort of, pathway, um, though an unfortunate one, to cover the rise of Trump. Um, you know, I was early in saying that he would win. I was early in saying that, you know, should he win, he's going to rule like an authoritarian kleptocrat. Um, I knew about his mafia ties. I knew about his ties to the former Soviet Union. Um, that led to places like MSNBC putting me on the air for a while. Um, only, only a couple of shows. But, you know, uh, once I started then, um, you know, discussing the fact that our institutions were not holding Trump accountable and also not holding his broader network of criminality accountable, and that the reason for that is that our institutions are themselves incredibly corrupt and in on the crime, uh, you know, with those who they are ostensibly investigating, they began to take me um, off the air, and around that time, uh, I was working on on they knew. So I see it as just one um, one trajectory that unfortunately mirrors the downward uh, trajectory of American life at this moment. Yeah, I mean, I I went through a radicalization myself after I worked I worked on the Obama campaign. I was a campaign organizer, and I expected and, and I hoped and expected him to go after Bush for torture and uh, illegal wars and, uh, you know, wire, warrantless wiretapping and all these other things. Uh, and it didn't happen with Obama. And then Obama also carried out policies like the, uh, the coup in Honduras and the bailout of the bankers and the not bailing out <laughs> the, the people who got foreclosed on um, and Libya and, and, I, I then I came to realize that it was a more criminalized state that we lived in, and it made me go back and look at history. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people. Um, I mean, I don't know exactly how old you are, but just people born in you know the eighties, about um, who were very enthused about Obama initially, uh, had a hard realization with that administration and a lot of um, waiting around for promises to be fulfilled that were not in fact fulfilled. And in fact, they went in the opposite direction. Yeah. And I, I, I was already soured on him. And that by the time you had the uh, war in Syria, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and the fact that the U S went back to like using these Mujahideen Al Qaeda types uh, as our, as our, uh, you know, proxies or sock puppets again in the, in those wars, you know, uh, that, I, I I was even I was pretty cynical about U.S. Uh, the the state at that point, but that was really crazy to me, and that ties into uh, if you go back in history, it ties into a lot of the the characters that come up in your book, like uh, the octopus 
and uh, you know Adnan Khashoggi. I don't know if you mentioned mm-hmm. Khashoggi much, but he was involved. I in... mentioned him actually in the previous book, in hiding in plain sight. Um, I mentioned Adnan Khashoggi and the whole network that sprung up around around Contra, which of course is the same network that we're seeing now, like often literally with people like um, Bill Barr and others uh, that I think really coalesced in the late '80s, early '90s. Yeah, why do you? Talk about Barr a little bit. What is what in your mind is the significance of this this figure who does pop up again and again? And how does I mean, he sort of typify this this phenomenon that you write about? He's the cover up guy. You know, he's a cover up guy for the GOP, but broadly, he's a cover up guy for U.S. institutional corruption. He's marketed um, by all of these legal lackeys uh, that appear on cable news as a, quote, institutionalist, or at least he was until he once again, uh, you know, revealed himself uh, to be a consummate liar. This shouldn't have come as a surprise to anybody because, you know, in the early 90s, you had conservatives like William Sapphire calling him the cover up general, saying that Barr was too extreme for the Republican Party of George H.W. Bush. None of this was hard to find out. None of this information was difficult to find. And so when Trump installed bar, uh, people should have naturally thought, well, what is he going to cover up? And the obvious thing he was going to cover up was the Mueller probe. And I have a lot of problems with Mueller, you know, as anyone who's read my work knows, um, but he at least was able to pinpoint um, obstruction of justice charges and so forth. Barr's there to bury crimes. And of course, the other major crime he buried uh, while working under Trump was Epstein, um, you know, who I see as the ultimate catch and kill. And it was Barr's father, Donald Barr, uh, who hired Epstein to teach high school in the 1970s, introduced him to New York high society and uh, basically set that uh, child rape trafficking, espionage, blackmail network, or at least that um, that facet of it, uh, into motion. And the fact that so few folks in the mainstream media bring that up or bring up other aspects of Donald Barr's life, like his book Space Relations about intergalactic pedophile rings. I mean, yeah, I know it's like it sounds wild. It sounds out there. But I think it's directly relevant to the fact that he hired, um, you know, the most notorious pedophile traffic of our time. And that then, you know, Bill Barr, of course, uh, is, you know, installed in the government in a multiple a multitude of capacities uh, to cover up exactly this type of criminality, only doing it, you know, wearing a suit and a tie, speaking in a quiet voice, uh, very different from Trump in his demeanor, but not in his objectives. Right. Yeah, he's uh, I would guess he covered up a lot of a lot of things there with the I mean, the the it seems like things with Russiagate, like there's more than enough to go after Trump on for corruption and his ties to the mafia and so on. I'm I was I, I remain skeptical of the core charges of Russiagate um, as because I it, I feel like the evidence of the like who hacked Hillary's, Hillary's emails and such or of a major social media campaign in Russia was always rather thin. But there were but it, but when you look at Trump, you do see he has so, ties to so many, you know, organized crime figures and so on. It just seems impossible to me to believe that there would not be sufficient reason to disqualify him or jail him for something. And it does, does, do you think that Trump has benefited by the fact that he has enjoyed this impunity for for so long Uh and because it, he is sort of intertwined with other elements in the system that that make this whole milieu 
just like something you can't touch? Or how has Trump been able to avoid any sort of a, of accountability here when, I mean, look at what happened to Elliot Spitzer mm-hmm. uh, and his and his peccadillos. I mean, they were peccadillos relative to Trump. And yet, who is it that can't run for office? It's Elliot Spitzer, not Donald Trump. I mean, how do we right. explain this? Yeah, I mean, partly that question leads to one of the answers, which is, uh, you know, Roger Stone is the person who brought down uh, Spitzer through blackmail operations. And Roger Stone's the person who brought Trump upwards. And, um, you know, like you and I said before we started recording, Trump is a symptom of a broader disease. And that disease is elite criminal impunity. It's institutional corruption. It's white collar crime and it's transnational organized crime. And, you know, this is the thing that I think just a lot of folks are missing. Um, You know, sometimes I I wince a little when I hear the term Russiagate, because I think that the actions in question are very serious. But I also understand, um, especially where folks on the left are coming from, because what was emphasized in what the Trump campaign did was the most superficial aspects um, of their actions, things like bot armies or social media campaigns or, you know, even to degree like the DNC hacking. That's not the root of it. You know, this is a uh, a massive uh, financial crime and espionage operation that does not purely involve Russia, although the relationship between um, Trump and the Kremlin goes back many decades. And obviously it does with uh, people like Paul Manafort, who managed uh, Trump's campaign, who, you know, who worked as an agent of the Kremlin. But it's transnational in nature. It also involves Saudi Arabia and Israel and UAE. And I think this this aspect of it um, makes a lot of the Democratic Party politicians incredibly uncomfortable. And that's why they keep saying things like all roads lead to Putin, where I'm like, fine, you know, eventually they do. But they take a lot of uh, side turns that are really notable to people like Netanyahu, uh, to people like MBS and the Saudi government, to key nodes like Jared Kushner, to various mercenary figures like Eric Prince. Um, You know, it's a giant, giant group of people. And it's so reminiscent to me of Iran-Contra in that it is very difficult to kind of pull all the different um, aspects of it apart, uh, you know, to kind of comprehend that level of corruption. You know, another thing that, um, you know, I guess both Democrats and Republicans would do is they'd evoke Nixon. You know, they'd bring up Watergate as some sort of corollary uh, to the investigation into Trump. And I kept thinking, you know, that is that is so simple compared to it. And you're also bringing it up because you're assuming that institutions will work, that he will be forced to resign or that he will be convicted. Um, whereas the real uh, prelude to this, I think, is Iran-Contra, where it's a massive criminal operation. Uh, the very few people who are convicted were then, you know, pardoned by Bill Barr, um, you know, working uh, in the George H.W. Bush administration. And then folks forget the details and it kind of fades into the background and everyone remembers and brings up Watergate to try to make this baseless claim uh, that the American justice system works and that powerful, wealthy, mobbed up individuals are not above the law where you can look at Trump and his whole cohort and you can see they're clearly um, above the law. And, you know, in terms of how this happened, my the book I wrote before they knew uh, Hiding in Plain Sight starts in the late 70s and traces Trump's rise, you know, his tutelage under people like Roy Cohn, um, his work with 
the quote-unquote Russian mafia, which again is really a transnational mafia dominated by people from the former Soviet Union, including um, Semyon Mogilevich, uh, you know, who's known as the head of the Russian mafia, but who is absolutely dependent on his ability to travel around the world, in his case, uh, via an Israeli passport, and then he moved to Hungary, then he moved to Western Europe, and eventually to the United States, where he was uh, basically protected by the FBI, as they pretended to track him down. A lot of these guys are protected to the FBI as they they claim they're investigating, um, you know, which is a, an unpleasant fact that I think a lot of the uh, legal analysts want to avoid examining. Peter Del Scott has said that or another name for organized crime is tolerated crime. And he pointed mm-hmm. out how back in Chicago in the in the 20s and in thirties, there were thousands of unsolved murders every year, and it was, you know, understood that this was mob mob business, and it was really part of the actual system of governance. Um, and uh, that's the, the argument that I make is that it, it was a something you could call a deep political system that worked in tandem with your normal or uh, constitutional political system, but that with the creation of those security states after World War II and the alliance between the clandestine services and organized crime, these they get brought into a more central role with actual state sanction oftentimes. And I see these arrangements as, uh, you know, related to that. I mean, in World War II, they, the, this precursor to the CIA, the OSS, worked with the uh, Meyer Lansky, Luciano mm-hmm. uh, syndicate to uh, you know, Operation Underworld, and they continued working with them in the fifties uh, with the in, you know heroin connection in Southeast Asia that they established shortly after the end of World War II, and they used them to try to assassinate Castro, probably something to do as side actors maybe in the Kennedy assassinations. Hard to say, but these these they do protect these people routinely um, in different in different ways, and that is. Uh, it becomes tricky to even know how to classify some characters like Khashoggi, for example, is Khashoggi, uh, is he a, is he thought of as an organized crime figure? Is he thought of as a, um, asset of the intelligence services? Is there a difference? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think is there a difference is a, is a fantastic question. Um, sorry, yeah. go on. Did you have more to what you're going to ask or? Well, this is like, um, so, as these these thing these relationships develop you you end up with this institution of like sexual blackmail for example as a component of this and you pointed out that Barr you know wrote this he his father helped to get Epstein hired originally and kind of introduced him to other kind of establishment figures and he and then the is it the older one or this or the is it the father or the son that writes this the pet the pedophile space this sp- oh pedophile the father space Donald Barr wrote this book right after um or published it right after hiring Epstein which I'm just like you know trying to work out some issues through fiction I I don't know I, I think it's bizarre I I did a dramatic reading of it on my my podcast I took one for the team it's really uh it's really gross um and it's really reminiscent of the actual Epstein case and oddly enough it's uh it has no mention of uh you know countries that exist on earth with the exception of Ukraine which um Donald Parr was obsessed with so anyway I don't recommend this as a uh you know well-written work of fiction but it's it's certainly interesting into a as a window into the mind of donald barr um which maybe explains how bill barr turned out the way he is by the way i have to ask you i've, I've heard so much about bill barr 
working for the OSS, and I've never really been able to pin down in what capacity and what he did. Did you find anything like when no. you were researching? No, not I, I haven't. I haven't actually looked too much into that milieu very deeply. I write I write more about the institutions of sexual blackmail. So I have a kind of superficial look at Craig Spence and the Franklin scandal in my book and also of um, yeah, other issues like Koreagate that was similar. And then I mentioned Epstein. But the Epstein cover up, um, even though Bill Barr is involved in this under under the Trump administration, I mean, wasn't this Obama's Justice Department that initially gave the deal to Epstein? Um, it to- was uh, Bush's, or at least it happened under the Bush administration, because it was 2007, and it was okay. Mueller. I mean, okay. that's one of the reasons I have a huge issue with Robert Mueller, is he was one of the people to cut that deal, and then Alex Acosta, um, you know, who was working in Florida at the time, but then became Trump's Secretary of Labor, uh, you know, which is an interesting move there. Uh, he was involved in it. But the thing with Epstein is that he was operating for, um, you know, nearly my whole life. You know, he seems to have entered this pre-existing operation uh, in the early 90s and then continued with many people in positions of power, uh, people working in media and corporations and government fully aware of what he and Glenn Maxwell were doing, knowing that uh, Glenn Maxwell is the daughter of Robert Maxwell. And they were uh, content to look the other way. And then when he finally was arrested, um, he was put on the most, you know, superficial and meaningless level of house arrest, uh, then released, uh, you know, shortly after, invited to high society parties, um, and then, you know, investing very heavily in technology companies, uh, you know, getting together with academics, studying things like eugenics and AI. It's very alarming because uh, I don't believe that this operation ended. I, I, you know, I think that's sort of a fanciful belief um, that just, you know, they, they catch him, he allegedly commits suicide, and then they get Maxwell, and then that's the end. Like, this was a very powerful blackmail operation uh, that involved an enormous number of people and, you know, affected the most powerful people in the world. And there's no way it would have simply vanished. So, you know, one thing I'm always wondering about is who picked up the pieces, who's running it now, in what form does it carry on? Um, You know, one thing I'm wondering about, given, you know, what's happening with crypto, which is not an area of expertise for me, which is, I guess, why I'm left wondering, is whether that's, uh, you know, where the money laundering behind it, the finances behind it, whatever remains of that operation, uh, is taking place. But, um, you know, this is a, I don't know, it's, it's a, I mean, I, I need to read your book, because you, you went into it. But you know, you can go back so many decades, you know, to find similar operations, whether Craig Spence or Roy Cohn, um, or just, you know, the use of the mafia and intelligence agencies, um, their use of sexual blackmail to control uh, political dissent, um, and to, you know, to some degree, dictate policy. It's a very frightening thing. And I kind of, you know, the one, I guess, upside of um, Epstein's, you know, alleged suicide in 2019 was I thought that maybe this will finally force all of these issues uh, to light. But then, you know, as I write, and they knew the opposite happened where you had so much uh, gossip and innuendo, such a lack of evidence and facts in terms of, um, you know, the cases which were then dropped because he was proclaimed dead, or how he, uh, you know, allegedly died with all of the cameras malfunctioning. It just felt more like there was a, um, a 
deep state rubbing this all in our faces. And the people obviously hurt the most by this are the victims of this trafficking operation. Um, and I feel terribly for them because that's something, you know, everyone should remember. They're, they're human beings pay a real price for this. It's not just an abstract, uh, you know, foreign policy or uh, espionage or crime debate. Um, the, the victims are alive. You know, they live to tell the tale and they live to see the lack of justice and they live to see the people, uh, you know, accused of these crimes roaming free, profiting uh, and doing fine for themselves. And that should alarm everybody. Right. Because it's very, uh, it's, it seems like they, they have tainted this in a way that it's it, it it isn't like there's an official stance of the media at, to like satisfactorily explain why they don't go more into this area i mean they'll they will mention in passing that people don't believe that epstein committed suicide or something but they don't ever try to put it into context have you ever heard any explanation about how epstein's like with Ghislaine Maxwell, she's char- they're charged with trafficking and so on, and they had all of this money, but nobody says that it came from an actual prostitution operation. I mean, have you ever heard them try to explain exactly what the oper- the media explained what the trafficking was even for? Because, I mean, had, they're, they're, they're not trying to even say that it was like a, prost- a massive prostitution ring, per se. It's just he was trafficking people. But for wh- why? <laughs> for, exactly. The- yeah, that's the question they avoid, and they use these euphemisms you know he's a a disgraced financier or a you know a bygone philanthropist or all of these things and they will admit they'll go into uh you know detail about the nature of the crime you know that it's child rape it's child trafficking but uh, you know why somebody needs to create this elaborate operation that also involves surveillance why so many um you know state officials and powerful corporate actors were involved with him meeting with him um you know compromised by him you know the the obvious conclusion is that it's a massive uh blackmail operation that very likely continues um those you know run by predecessors <clears throat> but what I found is the media is reluctant to even follow the obvious um, financial ties, you know, to people like uh, Les Wexner and his network, uh, you know, and he's a very elderly man, but he's still alive. And, I, you know, I don't see any effort to try to, um, you know, one, investigate and prosecute him, but I even find out exactly, uh, you know, what his role was. And then from there, expand to the broader network, um, they want to bury it. And they've been like this the whole time. You know, the first time that I started writing about him was in 2016, before the election. And I had, you know, pitched an outlet, um, an article about him because, you know, this is somebody who had been, Trump had been accused in court of raping, um, you know, a, a teenage girl that was procured by Epstein and Maxwell. And of course, you know, Clinton um, had been recorded numerous times uh, interacting with Epstein. So obviously it had great relevance to the election, which is why they tried to shut that story down. And they did that successfully um, by threatening, uh, you know, one of the victims at a press conference, threatening her lawyer, etc. And then it just kind of vanished again. And every time I'd bring it up, um, and I managed to get it, you know, brought up on on national television, because, you know, they don't tell me what to say in advance. So I think they were sort of surprised when I would pivot into that area. There's this sort of look of horror. But, you know, I felt like it was important. And uh, it's really disappointing to see the lack of follow through. And I also wonder how much of it has to do with, um, with lawyers, with people trying to, uh, you know, 
cut that kind of information out of books or out of articles for fear of litigation. You know, I know I struggled with both hiding in plain sight and with um, they knew with those parts um, of the book. Uh, you know, there was a lot of trepidation about me writing about those topics. It was easier and they knew because uh, he was dead, um, you know, and so was Craig Spence. And so were many of the people I wrote about with hiding in plain sight. I really wondered, is this actually going to be um published. And then after it was published, I had journalists tell me, you know, they wanted to review it or they wanted to interview me about it. And they were given a top down order to not talk about this book and to not promote it in any way. And it was a bestseller anyway. But, you know, folks really, really did not want um, any kind of analysis of exactly the question you asked. Why did this exist? For whose benefit did it exist? You know, because it goes beyond just um, trafficking and uh, and rape. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious journalistic malpractice because these are questions that should be that are fundamental to the case, and the the fact that they're left out is uh, a negative template, as Peter Dale Scott would would say. Uh, it, it shows you that it, it's a, a pregnant absence, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and it's one that so many people are interested in. I mean, that's one of these things. It's like, as I say in the book, it's like it's such a. a the comment on the state of America that Epstein is holding the country together because you could go from, you know, the furthest left to the furthest right to most people in between, uh, taking out, of course, the people who participated in, um, you know, criminal acts with Epstein. Uh, and you, you'll find complete condemnation. You know, nobody is is rooting for him. Nobody's on Epstein's side. Nobody wants to see this uh, go unpunished. And that is, you know, it's remarkable to me because there are so few things now I think that folks uniformly agree on. And this is one of them. And it's just it remains untouched largely by the mainstream press. Right. And one way they go about rendering these things untouchable is uh, the term that 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 uh, is used informally is uh, shit coat. Is to coat <laughs> in shit. And you call it preemptive narrative inversion. But an earlier example of this is in the Franklin case. Uh, one of the only groups to actually report on this uh, at the time was the LaRouches. They were out there. Yes. And I have, I suspect that they actually function in the, as an asset in some way that they have been uh, and that maybe the Birchers in some way did this in the past, that there's a number of ways that they've done this over decades to create these kind of nutty groups that delegitimize inquiry into this. The guy that wrote the book on this, DeCamp, uh, the, the first book before Nick Bryant, he added a number of things like involving satanic rituals that were kind of poorly sourced, but and that also seemed to have the effect of making this seem like not so credible, like a, like a credible story. Um, and how do, we, how, do, how do we see these things play out with Epstein? Because uh, they, they seem to be in full effect now. It seems to have risen to a fever pitch, really, these days. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that comparison is is dead on. I think um, the LaRouche, you know, newspapers, which are all you know, the archive of them is available online. It's like a predecessor to QAnon. You know, it's less outlandish. It's written in a more formal way. But it does that thing where it, it mixes, um, you know, facts that very few are willing to confront with utter lunacy or just, you know, baseless tales or, um, you know, exaggerated stories. And, you know, you combine that with the behavior of LaRouche himself and the cult-like 
or just cult atmosphere of the group. And then nobody wants to say something that brings to mind, you know, LaRouche and then have people saying to you, oh my God, you sound like LaRouche. You know, and nowadays the equivalent is somebody like Alex Jones. You know, you don't want to say something like, hey, I have some questions about 9-11, which by the way is a, you know, perfectly valid thing to say. Uh, but the minute you say something like that, um, you know, they, they accuse you of sounding like him. And then if you bring up you know, I think that the U.S. government is uh, compromised and also participating in a uh, criminal child rape trafficking ring, uh, you know, bringing into question uh, issues of espionage and uh, the corruption of foreign relations. People immediately say, oh, well, you sound like QAnon, you know, you sound like a QAnon person, a Pizzagate person. And that, I think, is why, um, you know, because Pizzagate came first in 2016. Um, that's why they built that narrative. That's what I called, uh, you know, preemptive narrative inversion. Although I like your what was it, shit coding. I, yes. I think <laughs> that really goes that goes to the point um, as well, which is you create this big broad narrative that uh, you know, generally speaking, is accurate. But in terms of the uh, specificity of it, um, you know, the spe- specific allegations you're making is, you know, total nonsense. And then because it's total nonsense and it's very easy to debunk, the broader claim, um, you know, about uh, pedophile trafficking networks in in governments gets dismissed, um, you know, wholesale. Nobody wants to investigate it. And our media, um, as well as our officials, they're so obsessed with their reputations. They're so obsessed with being respectable, um, with seeming, you know, intellectual and refined and part of this polite civil society. And that, you know, that leaves people uh, who are seriously trying to investigate it in a bad place because they don't want to publish work on that. You know, they'll reject it. Um, You know, and uh, like I said, it's kind of, it's a miracle that they knew came out. But the reason I was able to to write that was because the prior book had been a bestseller and I had you know, more freedom. And I thought, well, if I have this freedom, I'm, I'm going to use it to, you know, not just try to investigate these cases, but also explain why isn't this being covered? You know, why and how um, are all of these important political stories uh, being suppressed? Um, and that's, you know, for some not a popular topic. But honestly, I think for the American public, it is, you know, everyone's interested in the Epstein case, the same way people are interested in, you know, JFK, and that endures to today, you know, where we're uh, apparently going to hear new information, um, you know, unsealing of documents like no one the, it, when there's something that's traumatic and horrifying and deceptive, uh, people don't let it go. They don't let go a feeling of betrayal. And I think because Epstein was an abuser, it taps into a really resonant feeling of betrayal that Americans um, understand, even if they don't know all of the little details of the case. I mean, I think Epstein didn't commit suicide became kind of a synecdoche for a whole lot of other things. People saying Bush did 9-11, I think, was a similar kind of thing, although more overtly anti-establishment. It's funny that you mentioned Alex Jones and uh, in relation to Q, because I don't know if you've ever looked into uh, just this aspect of it, but the sort of precursor to Q, and uh, I would watch Alex Jones sometimes if he had an interesting guest on, but his right wing 
spin on things was always, I mean, it's kind of the original conspiracy theory worldview is one of them is like the right wing conspiracy theory where it's like, you don't have any analysis of the political economy of, of capitalism, but you realize there's all this criminality. So you, you make it, the conspiracy is just the conspiracy and that's everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, so Jones seems to be a, a person in that mold, you know, the conspiracy theory of history, you could say more or less. And he back in around maybe maybe 2014 or so, uh, I think before Trump, in the years before Trump, he would have this guy come on every now and then named Steve Pashenik, who was oh a, yes, I, I okay, but go on. <laughs> yeah, and he he was a co-writer for Tom Clancy novels, and Tom Clancy had you know relationships with uh, the National Security State to some mm -hmm. degree. Uh, you know, I think they actually liked him, and he liked them, and so on. So that's kind of how it worked. But he's also a guy who <clears throat> had uh, he worked in the probably with the CIA. He was a, he was in the State Department officially, but his background seems to be psychological warfare. And he it was published in the Independent that he was about to put out a book. The UK Independent, I believe, was the one that wrote the review on this or a preview of it. And they said he's going to write this book coming out called We Killed Aldo Moro, which was about how the Aldo Moro was killed in Italy in uh you know in the, in the 70s and pe a lot of people suspect it was a gladio cia thing because well in part because henry kissinger said hey if you keep doing this you're gonna get killed that's one reason why they think the u.s killed him but anyway he was about to publish this book and it never it never comes out it disappears the book never disappears and then years later he's on alex jones and he is putting forward a narrative about these good guys in the government who are going to eventually catch the people, expose the people that did 9-11, and there's this crime ring, and they're going to rat them, they're going to root them out, and uh, it's going to be truth and justice are going to prevail. The good guys are going to win. And so it was really, and I remembered this at the time because I was interested in the Moro case, and that was the reason I was listening to him speak, is I was thinking, well, he, I, what is this, how is this guy saying this? Because he actually is a character who has some connection to these entities you know, the criminal parts of the state. And he's saying this, but that actually evolves into Q. And, and so Alex Jones was playing that role, at least as far back as that. And you had characters like Pashinik doing the same sort of thing. So to my mind, I mean, I think that there's every reason to believe that there's dedicated, you know, operators who are, who are putting this stuff out and it's kind of out there is enough out there where we actually can see it in that form, at least. Yeah. And he's a, really interesting guy. I wrote about him too in um in Hiding in Plain Sight um in my other book because I remember shortly before the 2016 election, he came out with this series of videos in which he flat out said, um, you know, the FBI is going to rig the election for Trump. And the way he described it, he said it was a counter coup. He said that the Democrats were rigging the election first and so they were just simply trying to undo it um in the, you know, it the aim of, uh, I don't know, national security, or I don't even know, probably not democracy, but he had some sort of lofty justification for it. And I was really surprised that this just didn't get any kind of traction because I was watching this series of strange events uh, in the weeks right before uh, the 2016 election, you know, Comey coming back out with his, uh, you know, uh, accusations towards Hillary Clinton. And, you know, regardless of what one thinks about Hillary Clinton overall, um, you know, those accusations weren't true. The FBI was trying to, I think, um, not rig, but, you know, move the election uh, so that it would be favorable for Trump. And I think a lot of people get wrong 
the reasons why, um, you know, I think it's because of the FBI's own relationship with organized crime and with the Russian mafia in particular and under Comey, uh, you know, Comey took Mogilevich, who I'd mentioned before, off of the uh, most wanted list. There's a lot of acquiescence, um, you know, toward uh, the same Russian mafia figures with whom Trump was working, um, you know, with people from the FBI, people like Louis Free and William Sessions going on to work for the Russian mafia after working for the FBI. So I think that that was really, you know, what they were up to. And I don't know where Pashenik fits in there exactly. I mean, I think, he, you know, as you pointed out, he's a, you know, disinformation psyops. I don't want to say master because that sounds flattering. But, you know, I think he's good at what he does. I, I, I think he's intelligent and I think he knows what he's doing, um, you know, and what disturbs me about his relationship with, with Alex Jones is less him speculating about 9-11 than, than, than the fact that he participated in what Jones said about um, Sandy Hook and, um, you know, about that mass murder and that lie, that propaganda um, that they are telling. But yeah, he's an understudied figure. And again, he's one of these elderly guys, you know, nearly 80 years old, who I keep thinking, like, someone's got to get down what he said on paper, like what he's been up to or how he's involved with QAnon or whether he's one of the people helping shape that narrative, you know, which I I suspect he may be, um, before he, you know, passes on. It's wild to me because it's just the same people over and over again. And a lot of people, they worked within the U.S. government. You know, they portray themselves as um, outsiders and sort of rogues, but, you know, he was a consultant to the State Department. Uh, So on one hand, you could say, okay, that gives him credibility. He understands, um, you know, how the government actually works. He's willing to divulge the dirty details. And, you know, maybe to some degree that's true. Or you could say uh, he's somebody posing as that in order to enable a mobbed up, uh, you know, institution continue to carry out its crimes and cover up its past crimes, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, I don't know. You know, he's somewhat mysterious to me even now. Right. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. Uh, it's 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 fascinating. And yet it just makes you want to answer, ask more questions. And yeah. uh, <laughs> earlier you uh, you mentioned JFK and how that has held the attention of uh, the public for many years and that there's some documents that are supposed to be released today, actually. And uh, I'm supposed to interview actually Jefferson Morley tomorrow, who was the person who had oh, a press conference. I'm going to listen to that. Yeah. I've been watching him as he kind of starts to bring the facts to light. Yeah. Or, and he's well, a mainstream. Facts, yeah. He's a mainstream reporter. I mean, he was with the Washington Post for a long time, but he has, he's, he has done good reporting on this case. Uh, he's probably more in the liberal democratic camp than me I've, I've kind of moved to, to the left after uh, a number of years but he's a really good researcher and a, a good guy uh this jfk situation and the rfk you write about them a little bit in the book and about how they they attempted to go after the mob for a time uh in in, in u.s history that was unique um i don't know if you've ever heard this story but rfk wanted to get a book or a movie made of the enemy within the uh his book on organized crime and he had paul newman signed on to do it this is when he was the attorney general and the teamsters basically made it so the project got killed so rfk from this rich family and then paul newman they wanted to make this movie they had they had everything to make it but the teamsters were able to stop this so that's the power of these guys that is very interesting and yeah you know i've i mean with I'm not like an expert. I'm I'm no Jefferson 
morally, um, you know, but I, I have questions about both of those assassinations and I do not think the official story is true in either one. And I also don't think that that is or should be a fringe opinion. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me looking back because I remember in the 90s, there was a lot of uh, you know, inquiry about JFK, you know, of course, prompted, um, you know, in large part by Oliver Stone's movie, it kind of moved it back into mainstream discussion. But, you know, it was, I think, a a natural and normal line of inquiry, especially after all of the decades of corruption that had followed, um, you know, after Watergate and Iran-Contra and the Reagan era. And then, you know, the 90s were the sort of illusory period of peace where the cold, the cold war had allegedly ended and 9-11 hadn't yet happened and gave people the time to kind of, um, you know, discuss this stuff. And then after 9-11, though, I feel like it just went 180 degrees where any questioning of any official narrative, whether who killed JFK or, uh, you know, why was uh, 9-11, why was that attack not stopped uh, in advance, who benefited from it, etc., were viewed as unpatriotic, um, conspiracy mongering, uh, you know, paranoid, etc., etc. I mean, honestly, you know, for a long time, I just felt like we were not paranoid enough um, as a nation, but by which I mean, we are not vigilant enough. Um, and we're not willing to hold powerful actors accountable enough. Now everyone's uh, paranoid, because you know, everything's been going to hell for, for a long period of time. And that's what happens. Um, and you know, paranoid to the degree that there's sort of a fine line between credulity, where you kind of believe everything you hear, and total skepticism, you know, nihilism, where you believe nothing you hear. And I try to inhabit that place in between. And I'm guessing, you know, you and others who look at this seriously do as well. But yeah, I'm curious now in this kind of environment, what the reaction to JFK revelations will be, because people really are primed to believe either everything or believe nothing um, without a lot of nuance. And I also think there's going to be an effort by mainstream publications to kind of you know, Epstein this to kind of just push it aside or, you know, give it give it a little, you know, box in the corner of a newspaper and, and hope that nobody notices that these uh, information was revealed. But we'll see. Yeah. I mean, there's the four hour version of Oliver Stone's new documentary, uh, which is to me devastating in terms of like laying out the some of the forensic issues of the case, which are obviously very dubious but also the foreign policy issues, which are really significant. And then there's the fact that RFK, a week after the, the assassination in Dallas, RFK and Jackie send an emissary, family friend William Walton, uh, there secretly. So he's supposed to be for some going on some cultural exchange to Moscow for like artists. But he delivers a message to the Soviets saying that the Kennedys know that they, the Soviets were not behind the assassination, that it was a domestic right-wing plot, and that uh, Robert, the quest for peace that JFK had started, you know, trying to end the Cold War and such, uh, was going to have to wait because LBJ was too close to big business, but RFK would eventually uh, make a run for the presidency, and then the quest for peace could resume, uh, you know, at, uh, once he was the president. And he also, RFK also told his friends that he wanted to reinvestigate his brother's assassination mm -hmm. as president. Uh, but of course, RFK dies. So, I mean, all of this stuff is just out there in the, in the historical record, but it's studiously avoided uh, by the, the mainstream press and the, and, the mainstream, and academia as well. They just, they can't go there because it, 
I think because it's so it delegitimizes the the institutions that they they work for, and it kind of delegitimizes all of their methodology, which relies on accepting the sort of veracity of official sources first and foremost. And so there's so many reasons for them to just avoid this this material. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you know, academia was was frustrating for me in that way. I mean, I, I was studying Central Asia, so I had a little bit more leeway. You know, people don't object to you saying that, you know, Uzbekistan is awash in corruption and conspiracies because, you know, well, one, people in America don't care about Uzbekistan, but also, you know, it's undoubtedly true. They were far um, less willing to look at the U.S. in this way and to analyze, you know, one, the emotional component of conspiracies and not in a way that mocks and belittles the people who are investigating them, which is the stance that I think they really encourage American academics to take. You know, you're supposed to be constantly positioning yourself as above it all, as some sort of rational, objective uh, actor who has learned through their thorough study of American history that all of our institutions are good and well, or that everything can be chalked up to an ideology where, you know, in some cases there is a criminal conspiratorial plot. You know, there actually is one and it's it's not, uh, you know, a motive beyond like greed and, and sadism. Um, you know, and I think a lot of folks are just adverse to that. You know, it gets very dark. I think the levels of betrayal, the idea um, that institutions uh, could carry out an act and people really can keep their mouths shut for a long period of time uh, that betrays the American public in such a profound way really scares people. And I think the more time goes on and, you know, whether 9-11 or, or COVID or other um, kind of tragedies that, that shook up Americans' sense of security and safety, uh, the more that they occur, the more people, I think, sort of shy away from, you know, wanting to know exactly how far the government will go to commit uh, or cover up a horrific action, especially when it's directed at an American. Um, you know, I think, Eventually, under the Bush administration, people realized what they were doing in Iraq, um, you know, the the extent of war crimes, the extent of theft. Uh, but they were more reluctant, I think, to look at it when it was directed at um, Americans themselves. And I don't know whether I, I romanticize this era, but, you know, one thing when I read reporting from the 70s, I, I feel like people were not in that frame of mind. Like when I, I read mainstream reporting, they were willing uh, to challenge power. They were willing to challenge authority in a way that started to kind of die off in the 80s, I think because of changes in um, media conglomerations and whatnot, but just sort of a broader change in political culture. Because uh, I think these issues, they are mainstream issues. You know, they're seen as fringe. They're seen as out there. And I don't think they should be. I don't think that trusting a government that has shown itself to be corrupt, um, you know, is some sort of normal <laughs> stance of behavior. I think questioning it is the logical thing to do. Um, and, and folks should not be penalized uh, in our profession for doing so. No. And I mean, these questions are th th these this level of uh, some of the secrecy involved here is staggering to, to comprehend. There's audio of um, Richard Nixon talking to Richard Helms uh, in, in uh, I believe it was the, the year before Watergate. It was like the summer of 71. And he's there in, uh, I don't know if they're in the White House or at Langley. I guess they're in White, the White House where the taping system could record it. 
And he says to Helms, um, listen, uh, we got to talk about this, this whole who shot Jack thing, you know, because I it, this issue may come up again and I, I'm going to need to know the facts so I can protect the agency, the dirty tricks department. You know, I, I need to know, was it was it the CIA? Was it was it Dick Nixon? Who was responsible for this? I just let me know. I, I want to get these files. So Nixon's try, Nixon himself is trying to get. JFK assassinations uh, material from Richard Helms, who's his director of central intelligence, and Helms never gives it. Helms never gives it to him. <laughs> yeah, mean, no, that was that was not a bad Nixon imitation you got going on there. But yeah, um, the fact that people in these you know positions of power that the the president um, could have to be beholden to the CIA or to other um, you know uh, intelligence agencies is a is a frightening thing. And I feel like it, you know, it's, it's become a cliche, you know, to accuse the CIA or, or FBI of malfeasance or of overall control, but it, it's a serious matter. Um, and it's frustrating that, you know, I don't know when I, when I, I don't really watch cable news, but when I sort of look at the roster of rotating pundits, it is becoming overwhelmingly folks from uh, those agencies and bureaus allegedly on their further expertise. But Ah, there's a real kind of feeling, and it reminds me of the feeling in the run-up to the Iraq War, uh, you know, where they only want people who are going to vouch for, um, you know, utter moral purity within these obviously deeply flawed institutions. Um, And I don't know, I feel like we've seen breaks in that pattern before, and now they're falling back into very old and uh, dangerous habits. Yeah, I I see them as the... Secret Service slash mafia for the uh, the oligarchy or the establishment. I mean, I, that's how I see these intelligence agencies functioning. If you look back at how they were created, especially CIA. CIA was created by Wall Street people. I mean, right. and that's and what do they? The first thing they do is, in terms of overthrowing a government, they overthrow the government of Iran. But the Seven Sisters Oil Company had already essentially put an oil embargo on Iran because they controlled the oil tankers and they were told not to take Iranian oil. So it's like they were, and Alan Dulles this was a lawyer for Sullivan Cromwell, Wall Street law firm for the biggest companies in the world. And that's how they have, that's how they have functioned. So it's, you know, there's the bureaucracy right. that you're wrestling with, but there's the, the, more importantly, there's the economic and political power that backs them and that they serve that is really the source of their, their power. So even if you got rid of the CIA, if somehow a big scandal took it down, you have to believe that those same forces would create something similar that was new and uh, would yes, do the same thing. Exactly. And I think that that framework helps demystify this for people. You know, a lot of people act kind of bewildered. You know, how could these institutions work against uh, the interest of the American public? And, you know, the answer is it's greed. It's greed and lust for power. And this is, you know, a, a trait in governments as old as time itself. And there's no reason to believe that the United States would be any different, um, you know, which is, I think, why both of us have dismissed this uh, American exceptionalism formation, at least in the way it's normally used. I mean, what it is, is, you know, um, a way to cover up uh, elite, uh, you know, uh, criminally um, impunity um, and kind of justify it under, oh, you know, well, we're different. We we need to do this. It's for this sort of um, lofty endeavor. But yeah, that is, uh, you know, where all of this meets. It's a mixture of organized crime, you know, corporate crime and state corruption. Uh, and that that should be 
not that hard for folks to grasp. Ironically, uh, Robert Mueller gave a very good speech about that in 2011, um, you know, called the Iron Triangles, the evolving organized crime threat, then, of course, proceeded to act on absolutely nothing in his speech in terms of holding any of these entities accountable, because, of course, he worked for, uh, you know, one of the entities in question, which is the... uh, the FBI, um, you know, but that's that is what it is. It's protecting an oligarchy, protecting plutocrats, covering up the secrets of the wealthy and powerful, and allowing the United States itself to behave with utter impunity in terms of how it treats its own citizens and how it treats the citizens of other countries. Um, and yeah, I don't know. So given that, I mean, it seems pretty logical to surmise that in all of these institutions and in the really the most powerful institutions in the United States if a person has risen to a position of of power and influence then it suggests that they're not going to be a savior for us but probably it suggests more clearly that they are corruptible and co-optable or they wouldn't have been able to rise in this kind of a system so it, yeah, how, I think what do we do with that Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right. And I think that nowadays, especially after Citizens United, it's more overt than it ever has been because you can literally track the donor networks. I mean, of course, there's also dark money networks, but we're not in a uh, America anymore where any sort of normal person, middle class person can run for office, uh, you know, without getting the, you know, the backing of those giant networks. There's a few exceptions here and there. Um, but it's become more and more difficult. And, uh, you know, and that's a frustration. That's another frustration that I think most Americans share. They just don't necessarily know how uh, how this works and how the amount of money that is pumped into all of these campaigns uh, has just, you know, uh, risen at such an exponential rate um, over the last 12 years. And yeah, you know, it does make me, I don't, I try to, you know, give people a fair shake, give them a chance, but all of these individuals are working within a system that is designed to corrupt them. It's designed to limit their ability to do something good uh, for America and for the American people, even if they want to. Uh, so it's an uphill struggle for the the few good people who, who do manage to rise. And there's constant attempts from, uh, leadership, you know, um, of the Democratic Party to suppress those individuals. You know, the GOP to me is like lost completely and have full on embraced over authoritarian evil. So I don't even see a an effort to suppress the good guys because there just aren't uh, good guys. But, you know, within the Democratic Party, there at least was the potential. But then you would see individuals like, you know, Pelosi and so forth, um, shutting those people down, shutting those candidates down uh, as much as they possibly can. Right. Right. And I have come to think of it more when when people talk about the squad now and such. I, I think of it as imagining someone who's like, I'm going to join the mafia and, and I'm Then I'm going to reform it from the inside. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, it's it's sad. It makes me sad to think of it that way, um, you know, because I was I was somewhat hopeful in 2018 you know, and a lot of these new representatives came in. And I was also hopeful because we were in a environment 
where I felt like um, transnational organized crime and dark money and corruption was being discussed in a more forthright way uh, than it had been previously. And so once you acknowledge the problem, there's maybe some potential to remedy the problem. But, you know, they've been held back in so many ways. And I think eventually when you're held back enough, when you're browbeaten enough, you start to just give in to that system, you start to acclimatize yourself to that system, you know, and I'll give them some slack because, you know, we are, we're living in, I think, an unusually traumatic time, uh, you know, with COVID, with rising fascism, uh, with economic devastation, you know, that obviously far predates the, the pandemic, predates the 2008 uh, crash, you know, really has uh, been going on for the entirety of my life. But, you know, it's it's a lot to take. Um, and it makes people, I, I think they lose the will to just fight, 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 like as hard as you possibly can every day um, from sheer exhaustion. But yeah, it, it is a very broken system. And I think the refusal to acknowledge the transnational organized crime aspect of even dark money is a huge barrier to getting anything done. It's like we're back in the Hoover days, you know, where he was saying that the mafia wasn't real. You know, I feel like that's the approach that a lot of our politicians take where maybe, maybe they'll venture into white collar crime or or kleptocracy, but they don't want to look at the historic roots of this. Um, You know, there's a reason people don't know on the whole, you know, who Roy Cohn is, who Meyer Lansky is. There's a reason that people think of organized crime as being like, um, you know, Tony Sopranos or something, you know, a sort of small localized force that has worn out its welcome and faded away, whereas actually it's, you know, more powerful, I think, um, in its grip on American political life than ever before. It's just people don't identify it as organized crime because it's very posh people. It's people from Wall Street. It's people embedded in the entertainment industry and the media and corporations, and they don't look the part or sound the part. Uh, And so, you know, it's easier for politicians to get away with, uh, you know, bringing those people into their inner circles um, than it has been before. Right. I mean, when you talk about crimes and crime sprees and organized crime, uh, their fortunes seem rather paltry if you compare it to the brother of uh, was Hank Paulson was the Treasury Secretary right under Bush. And then John Paulson, I may be getting them mixed up because I haven't looked at it. could be the other way around. But I think it's Hank Paulson was the Treasury Secretary, and his brother was John Paulson. And his brother made a bet on the deriv- – on the basically that the – a derivative bet that the housing market, the mortgage the mortgage-backed derivative market would crash. And the end, when it did, it took down the U.S. economy, but he made a billion dollars on this. But the, the, you know, with these banks being insolvent and such, you, you have to figure that the only way anybody would be able to get a payout like that under those circumstances is due to bailouts and, and such so that these other parties would be made whole. I mean, this was, this was really astounding what they were able to do in the, with this financial collapse in terms of they, if people were paying attention to it and understood the money system and the way the Federal Reserve operates – they essentially create massive amounts of money out of thin air in order to shore up these these entities. And the question that didn't get asked by the press is like, well, why didn't they just write? They could have, for a fraction of the cost, basically paid off everybody's mortgage, for example. Like mm-hmm. they and they they didn't. They let these people get their homes foreclosed on, and these banks that should have been rendered insolvent uh, were pumped full of magic money. Uh, for for a time, while 
while everyone else got kicked out. And some people made enormous amounts of money. And the end result is this huge upward transfer of wealth. I mean, and this this to me is what it's really all about is the is who is it in the society that can just get richer, you know, while they sleep? I mean, this is like a, a part of capitalism and it's just been taken to such absurd and corrupt extremes now that that we are are just and, and that they have so much wealth that, that that they can corrupt things to the point that there's no democratic pushback uh, at yeah. this particular stage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like we have an unparalleled plutocracy. You know, it surpassed the Gilded Age, and especially just in the last two years, there is an enormous transfer of wealth upward because of the pandemic, and it's it's rendered these individuals untouchable in a way that's honestly it's it's frightening to me because i've never seen anything quite like it you know and like i said i spent my my academic career studying the former soviet union where of course you see um you know oligarchs uh you know people that benefited from like the car bomb 90s in russia just scooping up uh resources and monopolizing them and making just unbelievable profits but you know we're seeing this now in the u.s with people afraid to counter elon musk or counter jeff bezos or, or you know or counter any of these um you know banks like where paulson worked he was a, a goldman sachs guy like they are in not really just in thrall um they act frightened. And I feel like, you know, we're seeing the culmination of a very, very long trend, Um, you know, or as you pointed out, like the intelligence agencies and mafia kind of combined act as the guardians, um, you know, for these oligarchs and plutocrats through a variety of, of bureaucratic mechanisms. And the fact that I guess just so few have really tried to break apart this system because it doesn't benefit anyone outside that very, very tiny little elite. And then when it gets to this point where the regular economy, you know, even the economy of, of the wealthy is so beneath them because their amount, the amount of money these individuals hold is so enormous that, you know, a billion dollars to them seems, seems paltry. Um, then they can do absolutely anything. And that's like a, a very, that's an amount of power that should frighten absolutely everyone. Um, but instead they, they bow down to it and don't seem to want to break it. And I think the logical, reasonable, and obviously humane thing to do is to break it down, you know, to tear it apart. Uh, I guess we'll see, <laughs> I think, right. you know, when you don't do that, then it just, um, it explodes in some kind of fashion, but it's, uh, it's frightening that the very negative repercussions of that, um, you know, aren't being taken seriously either. I know, I know. And, you know, you, you, everybody who studies political science and such, and it, perhaps history too, you'll run, you'll hear talk of totalitarianism. You know, Hannah Arendt and all this. The idea of totalitarianism, I mean, the the word itself is that it's a totalizing regime that creates a political order in which no part of civil society is really to act as a be able to act as a countervailing force against top down rule, and it's hard to when you put our situation and you look at it realistically it's seems to me pretty clear that this is a a kind of totalitarianism and that there really is um not that we we don't seem to have much recourse here and so i'm going to put this question to you which people put to me and which i halfway enjoy and then halfway don't which <laughs> is what what is it that uh people ought to be doing at, at this point in time given what we're we're up against Ah, oh, the hope and change question. Every <laughs> every interview um, ends with that because it's always so. The rest of the conversation is so 
bleak. Um, yeah, I mean, this one is tough when you're talking about something like, um, you know, essentially what is a totalitarian economic system? I mean, it's different than a, a full political totalitarianism or you and I wouldn't be able to be able to have this uh, discussion about it. You know, we still have freedom of speech to some degree. We have a free media. Um, but, you know, I look more at, at local organizing, local groups, you know, mutual aid, ways that at this point, self-preservation and protection. It's communities that are trying to just um, form some sort of barrier against these larger, uh, you know, extremely powerful financial entities. But what's depressing about it is that it's more oriented uh, towards survival than towards creation. And that's out of necessity. You know, people are trying to survive. Their their wages don't cover their basic, uh, you know, cost of living. Um, I'm hoping that eventually, you know, smaller uh, groups like that, and also the reemergence of labor, um, you know, and of strikes, which really uh, is at a, a peak that I haven't seen in my life. And, you know, I'm a Reagan era baby and was told, you know, unions are a thing of the past and no one needs them anymore. Uh, I think folks uh, nowadays, especially younger people, um, do realize that we need them. So that's one point ostensibly of leverage. But yeah, you know, unfortunately, um, the old points of leverage, elections and and protests and even uh, documentation don't go as far as they once did. Uh, They don't because the people in power don't care. You know, they don't care about the citizens discontent and they're not worried about winning elections in a conventional sense. They're not worried about winning over hearts and minds, you know, by doing something beneficial for humanity, um, they're just interested in this ongoing money chain of, of donors and, and, you know, plutocrats and like an endless, endless election cycle, you know, that just um, it never actually ends. That's all the media kind of covers is this spinning round and round. So I don't know. I always just encourage people to get like a big picture view of the problem, you know, to learn the history, to learn why we're in this situation to begin with. Because if you have just that kind of... Um, overview, then you're not left with the sort of helpless feeling of why is this happening? I'm not saying at all that I have all the answers or that any one person has all the answers, but I think we all have a small piece of the answer. We all have some area of expertise that we can bring to the table. Um, And then there are other people who have, you know, talents in organizing and activism and all these other uh, spheres. And if we work together, then I think it's possible to at least um, push back and, uh, you know, at least uh, change people's minds that this is the way it has to be, has always been, and will inevitably be, because I don't think that that's, um, that's the case. At any rate, it's like, I'd rather go down fighting um, than just let it happen. Right, right. I mean, I think that we in Americans have lived in a kind of a bubble where we are divorced from the rest of human history. And we don't recognize that the by far the modal form of human civilization is a is despotism uh and the the uh, american exceptionalism kind of functions as the divine right of kings uh for for a time except that it's kind of losing its luster i think and uh like you i agree that we have to find ways to support ourselves and support those around us to the best to the extent that we can and I also think that just by being out there and talking about it while we are able to talk about it and enabling people to try to understand the the nature of the system we live under, that that's, that's the only real democracy that, that we have left, I think. And so yeah. if we're doing that, that's at least something. 
And so I, uh, I appreciate you coming uh, here today and helping us uh, to do that. So thank you very much. And uh, I'll put a link into the book so people can get it. And where else uh, can people follow your work? Um, well, for now, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> we'll see whether Twitter remains um, at, at Sarah Kenzier. Um, you could also go to, I think, sarahkenzierbooks.com is the one my publisher set up. And then I have a website, just sarahkenzier.com, that um, I only recently started updating again. Oh, and I have a podcast, uh, Gaslit Nation, that's weekly um, that folks can listen to. It covers a corruption in the United States and autocracy around the world. So more um, fun, uplifting, cheerful conversations can be found there. <laughs> but thank you so much uh, for having me on. It was a pleasure to talk to you as dark as this uh, topic is. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and to Mock Orange for the music. This was actually a challenging interview for me to do because so much of her book's subject matter overlaps with topics that are central to American exception, Empire in the Deep State. I think Sarah was great, so that helps a lot, but I really uh, was trying to keep things straight in my head when I could have gone in so many different directions with all this. So uh, I'm glad that we were able to... Uh, have this discussion on through to the end and uh, I'm happy she was here to um, talk about her book the way that she did. So she's a great, a great person to work with here. Sarah Kinzior's book is They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. She is also the co-host of the podcast Gaslit Nation. Check out the show notes for links. Till next time, chase the light. Chase the light.